0: So this morning, uh, we heard a testimony from Cameron, and, and we're changing it up a little bit. So there's no communion this morning, but I just want to remind you there are ways to give at the back or online. Usually if you, if you give up here while we do communion, that's not here this morning. Uh, but I, I do want to welcome you. My name's Doug Payne. If we haven't met, I'd love to meet you. So, so welcome here this morning. And uh, Nehemiah 5, if you're Uh, If you haven't been with us before, Nehemiah is in the first half of the Christian Bible. Uh, It's in the Old Testament, what we call the first half of the Christian Bible. And and we are in a series where we're learning how God is rebuilding and restoring his people. God, the God who rebuilds and restores. And uh, we remember that in the new testament paul tells us that we do not fight against flesh and blood as christians we don't take up weapons of warfare to fight those who aren't christians but our, our battle is spiritual we we fight against the wiles of the devil the devil is wily you guys old enough to remember Wiley Coyote? He had all of these these ways of trying to to to, to get the uh, the bird, right? <laughs> what was that bird called? I can't even remember. The Roadrunner. That's right. So he had he had he had many ways of doing it, and 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 this is the same as the evil one. They are they're wiles of the devil. He has many ways, and one of the ways is internal strife, division among God's people. He has many ways to oppose God's work, and he wants to see God's work and God's people fall. And since Nehemiah had been back in Jerusalem, Satan had been opposing God's work and God's people by outside forces. You remember uh, from Nehemiah four, he used the the taunts and intimidation uh, of outside forces in Sendbalat and Tobiah, in attempt to stop the work God was doing. And while it caused anxiety and fear among God's people, the work uh, the work of the devil actually failed, and the work of God continued. And when Satan fails, he has other tricks up his sleeve. When outside Opposition to stall God's work doesn't work, he turns to internal strife. Turns to division. A house divided against itself cannot stand, Jesus told us. When we lived in South Carolina, there were there were two teams near where we lived: Clemson college football, Clemson Tigers and the South Carolina Gamecocks. And sometimes you see this flag on people's cars as they drove around, one with the the Clemson Tigers logo and one with the Carolina Gamecock logo, and it would say a house divided against itself cannot stand. So apparently husband and wife went to different schools and they're rooting for each other. Well, that's what's happening in a more serious way here in Jerusalem. A house divided itself cannot stand. There is internal strife going on. And uh, the devil wants to divide God's people. Even there in the Old Testament, as the people of God work to rebuild the city of Jerusalem, internal strife comes in, opposition and oppression of their own people comes in. And here in Nehemiah 5, we have Nehemiah's memoir of the injustice happening among God's own people. And the question is, How do we respond? How does God's leader respond to injustice among his own people? So, Nehemiah 5, beginning with verses 1 through 5, we see the outcry of the oppressed. And Nehemiah writes in his memoirs, hear the word of the Lord, friends, Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields and our vineyards and our houses to get grain because of the famine. There were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now, our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. So the outcry of the oppressed arises not only to God's ears, but to the ears of Nehemiah. And what will God's leader do? The people have been back in the land for about 100 years. They already have a, a pattern of life and a pattern of living. And it so happens that the rebuilding of the wall coincided with a famine. These awful circumstances Brought, an opportunity, brought up an opportunity to address the injustices happening among God's people. In fact, it, it may be that the building of the wall sort of contributed to the famine. If you're up there building the wall, you don't have time to plant your fields necessarily. You don't have time to, to do uh, the necessary things to grow food and, and to cultivate the land and, and to feed your family. And so the people are in a bitter position. They and their wives are in a bitter position. They were being taken advantage of by the more wealthy among them. So they needed to get food so they could stay alive, verse 2 tells us. It's a shocking and terrible position to be in. Some of the people, it tells us as we read on and chapter 5 were having to mortgage their property in order to get food this is just how it works that they were building the wall they didn't have a chance to plant their fields and they had already had a pattern of, of life it sounds like of doing this and so in order to buy grain they mortgage they put a mortgage on their property they put it they put it up as collateral to get money so they can buy food and the cycle is, continues It seems to be a a pattern that has been happening for some time. And they're not able to to keep up, and and the the work on the wall interrupted other money-making opportunities or or opportunities to grow food. So they decide to mortgage their property in order to eat and go further in debt. Moreover, to make the situation worse, they're having to borrow money in order to pay the king's taxes. And, and friends, the king's taxes were not low. Uh, one pastor said that Alexander the Great, when Alexander the Great conquered Persia, Assyria, he inherited 220 tons of gold. And this was mainly due to the taxes that the Persians put on the, the, the people that they conquered. So the problem is, is compounding. The, the cycle of debt and mortgaging and debt and mortgaging and debt and mortgaging is not ending. And this is particularly shocking because it's happening among God's people. You know, God had made a provision in the law, Deuteronomy and Leviticus and Exodus. He had made a, a provision in the law for people who were to get into debt like this. They could work for six years. And then on the seventh year, they would go free, and whether the debt was fully paid or not, they were free from that debt, but they worked. It's less like slavery and more like indentured servitude with the hope of release. But not for these people. These people were enslaved by their own people with no hope of release. The cycle just kept continuing, and they would, they'd sell them into slavery again, and then Nehemiah would buy them back, and they'd sell them again. So what is Nehemiah have to do with you. Yeah, you know, we were all thinking, okay, this is this is great a story about several thousand years ago, but what does it have to do with me? Because very practically, debt is a cruel master. And credit card debt or mortgaging your house in order to pay bills or get food, the cycle of debt, whether it's completely your fault or not, can take a toll on you. It takes a toll on your family, you know what every—the two things every married couple fights about the most are sex and money. It's true, and and, and when you're struggling under uh, the weight of debt and and financial problems, your relationships get hard. And maybe the most shocking and tragic element of this story is that. The people had to enslave their sons and daughters. You notice that in verses one through five. They started to enslave their sons and daughters. They had no hope of buying them back from slavery because someone else owned their property now and they could not mortgage it. And they had no hope of returning it. And God's people are not obeying God's law, they're not fearing Him. Some of their daughters have been enslaved. It says. It could have been that they were married off or that they became some sort of, of sex slave or, or, or their, their daughters were, were sold into slavery like this and there was nothing they could do about it. Verse 5 tells us. It's shocking and horrifying. It's worse than a Halloween horror film. And they had been called to rebuilding and restoring Jerusalem but, but now their, their children, even their children are enslaved. This famine had set in. And their own people used this, this opportunity to make money on them. Those who were, who were under the, the weight of working on the wall and in debt and mortgaging their property were being taken advantage of by those who would charge them exorbitant interest, friends, debt is an awful master, but it's not as ugly as greed—the greed of people who would take advantage of those who were already under the weight of financial problems. It's it's sort of like those who would who would who would uh, you know have a, a, a check cashing place and and charge people half of their check. It's awful. Enslaving your own uh, people in order to make a quick buck is wrong, and God made it clear in his law. Leviticus 25, verses 35 and 36 says, if your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God that your brother may live beside you. If people are poor and they, they can 't repay their debt don 't add on interest. treat them, treat them kindly with compassion and I think this is the point of the passage here: These people were not fearing God because they were not obeying his generous gift of the law to treat these people not as if they were. Uh, strangers, not not, not taking advantage of them. But worse than all of that, friends, they were repudiating their redemption out of Egypt. They themselves had once been enslaved. They had been enslaved by the people of Egypt and were hard taskmasters, but God redeemed them out of Egypt through the Red Sea. He, he made them, once were slaves and now free people in, uh, on their way to his promised land. And, and what they did, what these people did, by enslaving their own people without any hope of release, they showed they forgot God's law and what it was like to be a slave. So what's God's heart for people who, for the oppressed that cry out to him under their oppression? And how should God's people respond? Verses 6 through 13. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself. And I brought charges against the nobles and the officials and said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who, you, who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brother that he may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of God to prevent the taunts of the nation's our enemies. Moreover, I and my brother and my servant are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interests. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and their percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called to the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep his promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen. And praised the Lord. And the people did as they promised. So how does a godly leader respond? Well, Nehemiah responds in a fourfold way. Anger, control, confrontation, and a call to action. Here's here's how Nehemiah responds. Here's how a godly leader, a Christian, should respond to injustice and evil happening among God's people. In verse six, you see Nehemiah is good and angry over this situation. Friends, it is right to be good and angry over evil that happens to others. You remember our Lord Jesus in Mark 3, when the Pharisees, Pharisees wanted him to obey the Sabbath laws over healing a man's withered hand, Jesus was angry. And, and Paul, when he was in Athens and he saw the, the city full of idols and idolatry in Acts 17, 16, He was angry. Friends, it's good for you to be angry over evil things happening to the most vulnerable. It's good for us to be angry over the killing of unborn babies. It's good to be angry over those who are abused in the sex trade. But let's not forget. Let us not forget as God's people our own sins, that are no better than the sins of those outside of us. This is the God who rebuilds and restores from the inside out. Let judgment begin in the house of God. God hates our sins, our injustices, our, there's outcries of those who have been oppressed under us. So while we're angry, let us not forget that we need forgiveness of our own sins. But there is a time to be angry over sin and injustice. Nehemiah is angry when he hears their outcry and, and the words, the, the facts of the case. He, he hears about it and he is angry. So what should someone do when they're angry? What's it, what should you do if you are rightly angry over the injustice and oppression of the vulnerable? Well, verse seven tells us. That they needed to make sure... Uh, nehemiah needs to make sure that he is under control he's he actually knows what's going on and his emotions aren't controlling him so nehemiah takes counsel with himself he just he takes a step back right he he is he is angry you know what it's like to be angry right am i the only one that knows what this is like Yep, Nate's like, yeah, you're the only one, Doug. (laughs) You take a step back, you know? Your your breath is shallow. You're you're pretty upset about how how someone has has done something wrong, either to you or to somebody else, and 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 you want to lash out. You wanna, you know, you you wanna you wanna say all the things uh, that would hurt this person, but Nehemiah doesn't do that. He takes a step back and he ponders and he reflects what is actually happening here. He understands his emotion is right. It's it's good to be angry over the wrong that's happening to others but you must not let that anger control you. So he probably prays about it. He reflects on the law. He reflects on what's actually being done. It wasn't actually wrong to charge interest to people. What was wrong was to charge interest to your brothers who were poor and couldn't repay that interest. So he doesn't go off you know, with a gun half-cocked, neither, but neither does he keep quiet. He does something while he's under control that we find very hard to do. Number one, he's angry. Number, number two, he's under control. Number three, he confronts. It's confrontation, verses seven through nine. And who is he angry at? Is he angry at these people who got themselves into the situation of debt by mortgaging and selling people off into slavery? No, he brings the accusation against the nobles and the officials. He basically tells them, look, guys, this is our fault. We have done wrong here. And he's taking his own responsibility in the matter. And he's been trying to buy back brothers and sisters from slavery. You see that in verses 7 through 9. And he said he has bought some back, but there are some sold back into slavery so that they may be sold to us, he says. It, it looks like as if these people were playing the system. The nobles had, had found a cheat to the tax code, and, and they, were, they were playing the system. They were, Nehemiah was buying these people back and they'd get more debt and they were being sold back into slavery because they knew that Nehemiah would buy them back out of his generous heart and give the Persian money back to these people. And here they are just continuing this cycle. So knowing this, Nehemiah confronts them. And friends, this is out of love, okay? I get this in the Pacific Northwest we're not very confrontational, right? We, I mean, it's not fun. And there are some of us who maybe like confrontation too much. And I'll just tell you, friends, not everything needs to be confronted, right? Not everything in someone else's life needs to be head-on confronted all the time. But there are rare times like this where things do need to be confronted. And we need to pray for the courage and the grace and the mercy, but also the gumption to be able to say, look, this is not right. And that's exactly what Nehemiah does. What you're doing is not right, he says. With all the calm and composure I I feel that Nehemiah probably had as a leader, as someone who would step back and reflect and and then go, he brings a lawsuit to them. He, He takes them to court and he's suing them in the court of God's justice. And the lawsuit is so convincing that they were silent and they could not say a word. Said the thing you're doing is not right. They, in verse eight, the end of verse eight, they were silent and could not find a word to say. He says, this is not good, friends. We cannot do this. We should fear God. Should we have not feared God in order to prevent the taunts of our enemies? So Nehemiah is angry. He's controlled. He confronts. And then he calls them to action. And he says, in verse 10, that let us lend them money and food and abandon the charge of interest. It just, it'd be like you going to your credit card company and saying, look, I owe you so much money, I am at your mercy, but I'm just asking you to stop with the interest so I can pay this back. And, and he goes on further to say, restore their property so they can actually have food and, and money. And then restore to them the interest that you have made by charging them, the interest you've made off of their land. And amazingly, the people respond. God has dealt with their greed. God has convinced them through this lawsuit that they are wrong. They respond in the affirmative. God gives these people a change of heart. They have repented. Friends, this is what it means to fear God. Nehemiah has told them, ought you not to have walked in the fear of God? Well, what does that mean? The, the, The fear of God, friends, uh, it, it is to walk in his ways and his law. It's to prove that God has changed your heart. It's to walk in his reality of, of how things should actually be, of, of not charging a poor person an exorbitant amount of interest so they can never dig themselves out of debt. You know, greed tells us that there is not enough. Greed says there's not enough. God is stingy. And I'm gonna have to take everything I get because God doesn't want me. This is what happened in the Garden of Eden, friends. God said you could eat of all the trees of the garden except one. And Satan came in and said, God is stingy. He does not want you to have the one thing that you should have. And we believed him. But the fear of God says, I will obey his commands though it costs me. I will obey even though it doesn't look like there's enough because I know. I know that God is not stingy. I know that he is generous. I fear God more than man, more than the unknown. So I will obey his command. That's what he's saying. Live like you have repented of your sins or entrusting in God alone. Friends, if you, there are two ways to understand fear in the presence of someone. Tim Keller says it like this. If you come into the presence of someone you distrust, you, will, you may be afraid. You will probably fear. But if you come into the presence of someone you respect and trust, you know that you can fear in the right way. An example of this is a man named Christopher Lee who played Saruman in the Lord of the Rings movies. And Christopher Lee, at one time in his life, encountered uh, J.R.R. Tolkien in New York, and 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 when he encountered him, he felt a sense of sort of like awe and and wonder, sort of a, like I want to you know bow my knee to him because I respect him so much. This is this is the fear of God. We we think of fear in in all of the wrong ways. I think that. that Fearing God is, is, a, is a, an awe, a, a reverence, and a, and a rightful fear of wanting to disappoint him because of, of how great he is, and, and how gracious he is, and how generous he is. So this is the call to action. Abandon this. Walk in the fear of God by being generous and, and giving back to these people. Show that God has changed your heart. And then in verse 13, he gives a sign accompanied uh, accompanying this call to action and people used to keep their personal items in the folds of their garments and their robes like we carry wallets and keys in our pockets and and he says if you do not keep your promise you will be shaken out and emptied and he shakes out whatever is in his in, in, in his in his robe in the folds of his garments and and, and he says may you be emptied out like this And Nehemiah says, they kept their promise. Friends, it is likely that in this whole scenario, Nehemiah is publicly confessing his own part in this sin. Whether whether willingly or not, he is confessing, we all and myself have sinned against these people. We've sinned against God. We have not walked in the fear of Him. and, and, And we have done evil to our brothers, Imagine a political figure admitting he was wrong and changing his course. Friends, we all know, don't we? Governors and kings are sinners. But there was a king who came without sin. He had no need of confessing his own sin, but instead took their sins on himself Sins of the people, like Nehemiah, and like you, walking. Maybe, friend, you're you're not a Christian, and we're, you're so welcome here. But you must remember that our, our sins have incurred judgment against God, like we read this morning from Revelation. It's our sins that have incurred. Judgment from God on us. We, it is us who should be shaken out and emptied because we have not feared him. We have not walked in his ways. We have disobeyed him. We have fallen short of the glory of God. But instead, Jesus Christ took those sins on himself, on the cross. He rescued us from our slavery in order to restore us God. So here is your call to action, friend, non Christian friend, and Christian friend. Repent of your sin and show your repentance by living in the fear of God. And all the people said, Amen. And they said, amen. These people here, God had worked on their heart and changed their life. And, and without the confrontation, who knows if this would have happened. But Nehemiah was willing to confront them with the truth. God changed their heart and they said, amen. Amen, it just means, it just means we agree. We agree with you and we will do it. We will do what you say and the god who rebuilds his people from the inside out is being glorified by his people keeping his promises that's what how godly leader responds to the oppression of the poor so what what does a changed life look like what does a changed life look like nehemiah gives an example of himself of what this changed life looks like in verses 14 through 19 moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall and we acquired no land and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds and every 10 days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on his people, on this people. Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. Keeping God's word is living in the fear of god or or living in a relationship with the great and awesome god that's what the fear of god means to live in a relationship with the great and awesome god so living in a relationship with god produces godly character right so Having repented of your sins, God now starts to produce godly character in your life. And one of the characteristics God has started to implant in Nehemiah and in his people is generosity. Fear of God produces generosity, just like we read in in verses 14 through 19. How how many of you have first read this and thought, Nehemiah is bragging? Just me. Okay. Okay. Never mind, I think you guys don't have that problem. But some of us may may look at this and say, it looks like Nehemiah is bragging to us, right? But the, the fact is, Nehemiah was just living a consistent life. He was willing to do what he had called the people to do. He was living in the fear of God, and the fear of God produces godly character like generosity. He was not only able to say what he was against, but he was able to say what he was for because he was in a relationship with the great and awesome God. Because he feared God, he hated what God hated, and his life matched his word. So, for 12 years, 12 years as governor, he was allowed to tax the people in Jerusalem for food, for his food allowance. But, but he knew that that was going to be too heavy, a burden on the people that were already overtaxed and overworked, and, and so he chose to forgo his rights and live at great expense to himself. And friends, don't you see the generosity of God in all of this? He who did not hold back his own son but gave him up for us all, how shall he not also with him freely give us all things? What does that have to do with your life? Generosity. Living in the fear of God produces generosity. Generosity with your time, your talent, and your treasure. And generosity with your time, talent, and treasure, friends, ultimately is a worship issue. It's using your time, talent, and treasure for the good of other people is directly tied to how much you fear God. Or, how you see God is generous. When when you give up your time, talent and treasure to to help somebody for somebody else, you illustrate that you see God is generous. Friends, I I just wanna say thank you for illustrating that to me. Uh, The percentage of our members serving in some area at the branch is way above the national average. It's, it far exceeds expectation. I'm, I'm so thankful for that. You know, I, I know that many of you give sacrificially so that we can continue ministry here. That, that is a show of God, of, of living in the fear of God. It produces generosity. And if you see God as stingy, then you will be worried about getting what you need from him. And you will just take, 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 take. And your life will turn inward on itself into selfishness. But when you see God as generous, your life can open up. If you see God as generous, generous then you know he has lavishly given you what you need. So I just want to encourage you, dear friends, continue to bask in the generosity of our good God. Think about it. Give thanks for it, and think about how you can reproduce that generosity in your own life. Uh, among the people here, um, among the, the, the ministries that you work out in, in Corvallis and Albany, uh, among the, the college students, uh, among the campus and the, uh, the, the faculty and staff, among your own neighbors and in this city, how, how, can, we re, how can God produce generosity in us? That's, that's how, we, how we want to be thinking about it. It's, it's by understanding and, 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 and basking and swimming in the generosity of God himself. The fear of God is worship. Produced by a relationship with one you can trust. So, dear friend, come into the presence of this one you can trust. He gave up his only son so you could do that. He, he treated him like an enemy so he could treat and receive you like a son or a daughter. This generous God has been at work among you, dear friends, let his work continue in us so how should a godly leader respond to the press of the outcry he should live in the fear of god he he should he should live in the generosity of the fear of god and, and faithfully follow him all the way to the end let's pray